Welcome to Grazed in America podcast. I'm your host, August Horstman. What are we covering on this one? I guess we did uh, the North Marion Squirrel Grand Slam. <laughs> I think I, I feel like we should really beat that down. I, you yeah. know, I think we should just just hash that one out. This again. is Grace in America. But we we're, we're going to talk about why Gatlin's <laughs> buying bulls outside of Missouri. <laughs> Disclaimer: uh, We were going to talk about uh, saving stockpile. Okay, okay, because I've got save stockpile for vacations, but I'm not sure if I hurt quality. Yep. Let's see what else. Uh, which paddocks to unroll and feed or feed on? So, like, I'm feeding in what well, we call it paddock one, but paddock one, let's say it is, uh, to the east is my neighbors. Uh, to okay. the north is the county road. To the west is a creek. You know, so, like, am I hurting myself from a rippling effect yep. by feeding there instead of, like, in the center of my farm? I gotcha. And most people probably wonder that. I mean, if you start to, you know, like when you talk about uh, soil microbes and, you know, your bacteria to fungal ratios, if you yep. start feeding on your best ground and then it ripples out, duh, you know, by feeding in one surrounded by neighbors, county road, are we rippling the wrong way? Yep. Well, um, the county road makes a pretty good dead stop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then... uh uh I mean, if we want to cover peak, like the peak plateau, I don't, you know, like the peak. like when we, you know, some people are saying regenerative's a fad. It's uh, not yeah. going to. I don't think we know what we don't. Uh, know. Yeah, that, don't that's know what that, I'm going to say. Yeah, I don't think we know enough to really say something right here, right now on that. That's fine. I've we, been and, recording, and, and, and we, can, we can bring it up. Yeah, but uh, I mean, we can even say that it's been recording. So I'll just trim off what we. Yep. Like our first kind of yeah. remarks, but... No, that sounds good. Uh, yeah, that was one question that was brought up, right? Yeah. No, and I think, I mean, it's it's a valid question because, like, yep. if you're going to transition... Um, yeah, to... And that's, I guess, assuming um, that, uh, you know, we drop all inputs, right? And then our mm -hmm. ground's going to peak. But, you know, if you keep using, you know, some sort of synthetics and, I mean... I don't know. You should, in theory, using cover crops should be making better organic, more organic matter. You should be increasing your soil's organic matter. And and that's something I struggle with is, again, like go the conventional route and what I do day to day. Um, it's beating your head. You got to replace the P and K. Um, now, there's a lot of people out there that say those, those sources are doing more harm than good to the biology. And especially potash, we talk about the amount of chlorine that's in it. If you dump chlorine in a pool you're killing yeah microbiology so i don't that, that's the one I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to do that transition wean off without having a collapse year because i my cousins did it and they had a couple collapse years and like being being seem like they can handle that transition corn has not we, we yeah mismanaged like it we look at our cover crops out here you know and coming off of a conventional i mean and when you pull the, when we pulled the fertilizer off of our pastures i mean right we're three years in yep and now starting to see that kind of turn around yeah the the crackhead um uh, yeah uh, um analogy uh, that seems to be pretty accurate because yeah. you go through that withdrawal sy syndrome and yeah and so i mean i th guess we're experiencing that with our cover crops or is that's it 
that's what it's apparent to me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that was one, but yeah, I mean, we're not far enough away into it, into our journeys to make those assumptions. I mean, we can all probably agree on that, you know, when you're implementing soil health practices, you're cutting maybe your gross product produced, trying to increase your net. Yep. But with that, you also need to be working on your sales from, you know, you're not targeting a commodity market. No, you you've got to be a price a price maker, not a price taker. Yeah, at that point. I mean, and, like that's the term. And yeah, so you're never going to pay for anything selling yellow number two dent corn. Yep. I mean, that's just not where we're at today. Yeah, you're not going to go full regenerative, full no till, full cover crops, and then take away your sprays and stuff, and then be competitive with a commodity market. No, no, I think yeah, you you've got to find your specialty, your, your little niche or wherever to yeah. to find some extra value. Yeah. And and it's there. I mean, like you got the cousin that you know, maybe took his, some of his corn ground and plants corn for whiskey. Right. Yep. And there's people that do for you grew, uh, some corn, tropical, tropical corn. corn yeah. And so what is that? What I saw it. What is, what was your reasoning behind that? Yeah. So, I mean, the ultimate goal with that is to use it as a grazing corn. So, you know, this year I'm still trying to get enough seed up and, you know, it's hard to beat with a 24 foot wall of corn. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if I've got a cow that can walk that down, yeah, then that's a whole wall of feed. So, and what kind of tonnage are you talking about with that? Like, if we do the old grazing stick analogy or whatever, <sighs> I don't even think the grazing stick works on that. No, um, yeah, because it was like go, fifteen feet tall, yeah, and it was planted the really, really late, so it should have been bigger. Um, mm-hmm. So, I'm trying to remember with. With silage would probably be the better way to look at that. Yeah, you're doing wet tons. Yeah, and you're doing wet tons. So you're probably, and I'm not a silage farmer by any means, so somebody's going to have an issue with this. Um, I think it's like a half ton per foot. I don't remember exactly okay. what it is. We haven't had silage back home in so long. I couldn't, I couldn't yeah. even guess. That's, that's but I, I mean, sh- if, if this stuff isn't going 25 plus tons wet, then I don't know what would. Yep. Because it's just so tall. There's so much yeah. mass there. And, I mean, we kind of jumped into it. Um, but we're recording an episode of Grace in America with Gatlin and uh, Cody, episode one and two. If you want to learn more specifically about what they do, now we're just coming back and just talking and being, uh, I don't know, friends and whatever and just talking about different things people have sent me and just questions that I've got, you know, in regarding, uh, soil health and, you know, natives and whatever. So, um, all, and we'll just go right back into your tropical corn. So that's, uh, you've got a fellow friend farmer helping you plant that. Yeah. Um, that's on your own, not nothing with it. Yeah, this is not university at all, I guess, to qualify that. Uh, this episode, anything I say is my own opinion and not that of my employers. Uh, but <clears throat> to continue with that, yeah, working with uh, with another friend, um, you know, they've got a planter. I don't have a planter. They had some spare ground, and we are uh, splitting the seed on it. So, you know, I've been working with this tropical corn for probably going on nine years now, seven years. I don't know. Oh, about really? the time I met you, Cody, is about when yeah. I got started. Um, 
Yeah, so I've I've kind of worked out all the bugs as far as growing it and, and making it work, but, you know, you're never going to set a yield record. I don't know, maybe you would with silage, but um, the what kind of makes it do its thing is it's, it's day length sensitive, so it has to have, you know, the right amount of night and day before it even gets triggered to... Uh, to send out a tassel and flower and do normal corn stuff, which is not mm-hmm. what corn does. You know, it all goes off heat units, and I'm sure, Cody, you deal with that more. But, yep. um, you know, so this, you know, when I've planted it April 1st in southern Missouri, it flowered within a day or two of when I planted it July 4th because it's just got to get that daylight. So if you plant it early, basically it never gets that trigger to stop growing. So we can think of it, you know, we've got day-length sensitive uh you know, sorghum sedan hybrids and stuff like that, from a grazing perspective, they just never hit reproductive. If we're looking for quality, that's what we want. So You want it not to hit reproductive. Exactly. Because so, I mean, we're putting on biomass. Exactly. We're putting on biomass, and we still have, you know, all of our protein, all our digestibility, everything is still good. Mm-hmm. Once we, which corn, it gets different because you have all the value in the grain, which is why we wait so late before we start utilizing you know, corn in other ways, but yep. as a grazing crop, as a summer annual, you know, I'm trying to make it fit in where I would have put, you know, a forage sorghum, sedan grass, something like that, mm-hmm. you know, but that is a specialty product that I think tonnage wise can basically fill the summer slump where I've got fescue that's falling off the map at that time. Yeah. Central Mo fescue. Yep. And on, on top of the, uh, daily day length sensitive um it does have some mycorrhizal or microbial associations where it fixes some of its own nitrogen too does it, it yeah yeah not, yeah yep. um so okay. so that's that's kind of an interesting one and you know some of your tropical corn so the things kind of from the center of origin for corn so central mexico southern mexico um those they do what corn is supposed to do we've bred a lot of that out of it in the sake of production mm-hmm which is, is good if you're trying to raise grain. You know, yeah, just this a commodity-type product. Exactly. But from a, uh, you know, a corn being a wild product in a way and being closer to Teosinte, which is its ancient relative, this is a lot closer to that. So um, it does have some sort of, of uh, interaction with a, a nitrogen-producing bacteria, um, and we didn't even know about that until... I think it was 2014 at Wisconsin. They at UW Madison. They did some research and said, "Huh, this weird jelly that's on this this uh, brace root. Mm-hmm. There's nitrogen in there, and it's dripping down into the roots. Okay. So we've got the science behind it, and this just happens to be one of those varieties that does it. So we're still trying to quantify. And when I say we, I mean science in general is still trying to quantify how much nitrogen that produces. Mm-hmm. Is it enough to raise the plant itself? Do we need added inputs? But it definitely does open up the realm of, you know, can we get away from some of these inputs? You know? some, some of the th- synthetics, right? Exactly. And so have they done anything on quality of the grain for, f- f- I guess, milling for, like, corn flour and stuff like that? Or... Or anything like that? You know, on this particular one, you know, I have not seen anything off with that. But uh, if you look at some of the results from just other open pollinated corns, because that's what this is in the big scheme of things, you know, I haven't ever seen an open pollinated corn test result where it didn't say analyze twice because something came back being way out of the normal range. Yeah. 
you know, be it vitamin A, be it something else, be it protein, you know, usually it's a couple points higher on protein. So mm-hmm. there, there is something that goes with that. Yep. And so you went through, hand harvested it. Yep. Correct. Because the plants literally were like 15 feet tall. Yeah. We were in the back of a, of a wagon standing on basically a pile of corn underneath it and still reaching all the way up above our heads to get this stuff. And then, so the stalks that were left. Stalks that were left, they're getting grazed right now. By sheep? Uh, by cows. Cows. Yeah. So, um, how many acres was it? Mm, this is only two acres. Two. Um, this is the biggest plot of it we've ever put out. Okay. This is probably the biggest patch of it outside okay. of where it came from in Mexico. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's cool. And then, so, you got cows on it. How many cows are uh, roughly... You know, I'd have to go back and ask him, but when I was up there the other day, I bet he's got 20 head or so. Okay. You know, we're we're picking up a lot of the ears that, uh, they're eating a lot of the ears that, you know, we just passed over because you could tell they were kind of mushy, mm-hmm. you know, weren't, weren't going to be what we wanted to try to mess with, shucking and shelling. And then on those plants, are they like knocking, knocking them over or is that? Yeah, so cows will walk this down, and that's why I really think it's got a place as, as a grazing corn in the summertime. But the way we picked it, basically, we were knocking a row oh, down as we drove through. Yeah, because you were do- picking it with a tractor and a yeah, wagon. Yeah, right? we were standing on a wagon behind a tractor. So you could, okay. So you were picking off the bucket, what was in front of you, and then picking off the sides from what was behind? We'd go, uh, go down, down a row, pick next to us, and then we'd come back, drive that row down, pick next to us again. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Was it in 30-inch rows, or was it? Yeah, so this was on 30s. Um, You know, I still farm like it's 1951, (laughs) so when I planted, it's on 38s. Just that's what my planter does. I didn't notice a difference there, but both of them were planted right around that 20,000 plants mark. I'm considering trying something, putting something between in the the – and doing 60s with it just to see how it expresses. Yeah, and I mean, there's a lot of of research that's going on right now that – um, you know, looking at those solar corridors, just wide row spacings, trying to get something in the middle there. Because, you know, basically you're acting like the outside row if you're on those 60s. Yep. You know, if you got a good flexi or hybrid or something, it makes up the difference. Yeah. So was there anything in between or just kind of whatever came from being on a, a wider corn row? Yeah. So, you know, this on, on 30s this year, we just wanted seeds so that we could actually play with it in mm-hmm. 2023. Um. You know, so this was raised like a grain crop, grain crop, trying to make as much seed as we can. This year, we'll actually plant it on wide rows a little bit. We'll do uh, do some as grazing corn. Um, I'll probably put in 15 acres of it or so and just allot it daily and let the cows walk it down, eat everything they'll eat. So off of two acres of planted corn you've harvested this year, roughly 15 <sighs> acres worth of plantable? Oh, we're more than that. Oh, really? Um, yeah, we'll probably end up with somewhere around 80 bushels. Um, okay. So, 80. you know, that's... So that's 40 to the acre? Yeah, and we probably lost a good half of that. Um, the issue with being a day-length sensitive corn is it doesn't flower until really late. So you end up with some drying issues and you can't just go through and combine it. You know, some of that, if we could have picked it in November, maybe, mm-hmm. we could have dried it down, still got seed off of it. But, you know, the windows just didn't line up, so we lost quite a bit. And, yeah, because you just picked it, what, a week or two ago? Because uh, yeah. Nick and I were up there, I don't know, what was that? That was like two weeks ago. It was before I went out to Billings, so, yeah, I'd say it was 
Yeah. So, I mean, we're, we're solidly into January picking it. And, yeah. Okay. Um, some of it is, some of it's dried down, looks good. Others, you know, they're, they're kind of sweet corn fermenting in the ear. So okay. just glossing over those, but you know, of that, that amount of corn, I'll get 15 acres and probably give some to Cody. Um, and the guy that we grew it on, you know, we're going to plant a lot there and just really see what it'll do as a grazing corn. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, yeah, well, that's uh, pretty neat. I mean, and that guy is uh, Harry Cope. We'll just call yeah, him out. Yeah. I mean, I mean, he's a wizard when it comes to planting and grazing and finishing, you know, stacking yeah. enterprises. He's um, the guru. Yeah, yeah we, this is definitely out of his wheelhouse, though. You know, it was kind of yeah. interesting to make him be a grain farmer for a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> the fact that, yeah, that was out of his wheelhouse when everything else is, <laughs> whatever, everything else he's doing is like 10, 10x out of everybody else's wheelhouse, you know, grazing yeah. Milo, standing Milo. And uh, we looked at it that day, you know, and he was like, his cows harvesting his Milo was paying 2x what it would have uh, cost him to combine. You know, oh, like, yeah. so if he would have combined it, sold it at the elevator, right? His cows were paying him 2x that, which by grazing it, which is, I mean, pretty cool. And th- you're, uh, Cody, you're trying to thinking about doing that some cover crops, Milo. Yeah, I think behind my wheat this year, at least on a portion of my wheat, I'm gonna I'm gonna um, no till some Milo in right behind it and kind of do the same thing. Cause I called Harry because I was I was just kind of working through some numbers myself and I was like, man, I'm doing something wrong here because it, it shouldn't just really conservative cash flows seeing what that would net you know mm-hmm. trying to run some some cows on it for 120 days um contract grazing and it was netting better than my my corn numbers and my bean numbers that are also conservative this year yeah like man i gotta be doing something wrong and yeah running it by harry he's like no that's yeah you're you're hitting in the right wheelhouse so and your numbers should be pretty sharp because you just came off out of ranching for profit right <laughs> yeah they're getting they're getting even more fine-tuned yeah I, yeah and how was that i mean uh y- you know that I wish I would have I would have done that four or five years ago when I first started thinking about it and um, you know Gatlin me got plant science degree so I had a little bit of econ but it was yeah yeah a, a week out there was worth more than an entire semester than anything I took at the university and that's not to rag on the university it was it was just a lot more applicable in real world um, yeah applicable to my situation so it, it was easier to learn and yeah i mean we've got a lot of changes we're currently in the middle of making on our own operation because as a result of that um so we'll we'll see how they change out throughout throughout the year but yeah that's that's cool i mean uh, hopefully this year i'm planning on trying to get that out get out to a ranching for profit i think that's it's what, worth it to anyone that's yeah yeah on the fence because i it, like i said it was four years i talked myself out of going so like the, the price tag and I, I got my wife to go with me which was really nice because she she farms with her family we were involved together oh, they with know the operations that, but that, the, the listeners know about your swine <laughs> yeah. your swine farm with your in-laws yeah i got so, a lot of questions about that so we're in different realms um but it, it was it was really good because we're, we're more on the same page of what our mutual goals are because you know it, it addressed some of her concerns with what i'm doing and yeah i, I can kind of get on the same page with her so um yeah that's it's neat. helping that's, a lot yeah that's the thing being team you know being a team with with going about it yep because um, I'm probably too far out there some days for everybody else's <laughs> ideas. But, <laughs> yeah, well, 
you know. Um, and we made a post because we went to Harry's that day, and then we came up to see you. We looked at my bread heifers on uh, that you were backgrounding. And how'd your uh, bale grazing go? Uh, pretty good. I took a picture before I, I came up here today, so I'll have to show you guys afterwards. But it's it's going good. I'm probably about halfway through that pile. So they have been hitting it a lot harder than they did last year. I don't know if it's hay quality or what. Um, but in, And that's where we're unrolling some bales for some sheep, too. E- everything we're feeding is going through hay a little bit faster, which sounds pretty similar to our neighbor situations. Um, yeah. But it's going good so far. I'm, I'm going to have to put out probably another 50 or 75 bales to... So what what kind of tonnage per acre are you doing with that? Oh, so I put out 110 bales, and I meant to measure that yesterday. Um, I think it's on three acres. It's either two and a half or three acres is what it's on on this wedge. Um, it's an eight acre total field, but it's a smaller portion. There's a road that splits it. I, I'd say I'll say three. So okay. four, 1400 pound bales. I weighed a couple of them just to have an idea. It's 14 mm-hmm. to 1450 is what they were weighing. Um, so. A hundred of that hundred and ten are on that two and a half acres, and I set another ten out just kind of intermittently mm-hmm. where I had some weak spots in the pasture. Um, so whatever that works out to um, math wise, so we're yeah, Oops. and one point four million is it? Yeah, pound yeah. pounds of yeah dry matter on on three acres. So um, seventy head of cows, along with like we're right under forty head of calves on the sides of them and a couple bulls. But well, I think that's really interesting because. Um, you know, when we think of bale grazing, there's, there's there's two schools of thought. There's the, we're putting millions of pounds out and we're, you know, like almost running like a feedlot type system and we're really jamming all those nutrients, everything back into the soil. And then there's the other side of that, which is it's not actually that intensive. Yep. You know, and I think that's an easy way to ease into it is that not too intensive because it doesn't look ugly. You can see a benefit and then just keep ramping it up. But you know, it seems like there's no one in the middle of that. You're either all in or you're just kind of skirting around doing it. Yep. And and so my biggest thing with doing this, uh we, we started last year um out at my mom's place and this year it's it's right across the street from my house. Um you know, in northeast Missouri we're we're hard clay pan soils with pretty good layer you know 12 inches of fairly good topsoil on top of it but man it drives me crazy to drive a tractor across trying to trying to feed hay in the winter time because you run oh, yeah. and pug so bad up there um i could go set the I, I like bale grazing to plan for mud season i would i would prefer to unroll the majority of the time but mm-hmm. That's i like the way i am I like to set some stuff out to get ready for the mud season so I don't have to run a tractor on that. But then to go back to, like, your tonnage, yeah, if I'm going to screw up a spot, you know, if I can cram them in there, yeah. one, it's going to change the, the the entire species component of that oh, area, yeah. like, insanely. And it's it's on a small portion. So, you know, of, of three, you know, whatever our acreage is, I'm, I'm yep. 300-some with, with some rented pasture in it um you know i'm screwing up three acres right now so yeah so i mean you can you can afford to make that small of a mistake yep. on that scale if it doesn't grow for the rest of this year i'm i'm still okay but yeah but one thing you also left out is right while you were bale grazing you set it up it allowed you to go out of town for a week yeah at over, least yeah, over, over a, a week, week right you know that no one has to mess with really anything right because if they you know, you, you stripped it off, right? They're going to go look at your cows, make sure everybody's still living, water's still working. They roll up a little section of polywire, pull yep. the post, right? If for some reason all the polywire gets knocked down, there's still going to be enough, you know, they won't really, I mean, they might waste a little more, but, but what is... They're not going to starve. That's the big thing. Yeah. yeah. 
And that, you know, allows you peace of mind plus asking somebody to watch your stock while you leave. Yeah. And so, like, the first day we took off for Billings, I'm trying to think, whatever, the, the day you all were harvesting the corn, so you, yeah, yeah, you got, yeah. or right before you guys harvested the corn, I think I want to say it was the 6th of January is the night we drove out there. And so, we drove out through the night of the 6th. We kind of goofed around on the 7th, and 8th is when the class started, if I'm getting, whatever the Sunday of that Ooh. week was. Um, and yep. they called me right through the, the beginning portion of the class, and Hey, cows got out and knocked. Yeah, there was. There's a little South Pole bull calf that really likes to knock fence over, so he's uh-huh. gonna get butchered this summer. Um, <laughs> you just need a hotter fencer. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the big issue. But yeah, I don't know why it does not get him. But so yeah, it was him. He knocked the fence over, and all the cows got out in it. So they walked through it, shooed the cows back out. You know, they they all rubbed on every bale that they could, but mm-hmm. put the fence back up. Start back over, give them five bales at a time, just kind of creep our way along. So. Yeah, yeah. And five bales at a time to how many cows uh, roughly? Like I said, 70 cows um, and roughly th- roughly 40 head of calves with them. And those calves are various. I've got some that are finishing off for grass finished um, t- for direct marketing. I've got some other calves that were just born within yeah. the last month. So so at that rate, is there enough head space for every animal? So like the 70 head of cows, I mean, you're over – 10 head per bale. Yeah, and it, it's a little tight. Um, if, if I was just trying to do it to make sure everyone got an equal bite all at the same time, I should probably be probably pushing a little closer to seven bales currently. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just all – you could adjust that based on your own spacing. I got them a little tighter than I meant to. Um, but what it seems to be, if I give them five, that's about what they need for a day to a day and a half, um, just depending on how the day is going. But they'll get up and they'll start cycling to water. So uh, after the initial rush where they all hit it, a couple cows will go get a drink and it's like they, they kind of have their little rotation so you have some laying down ruminating some drinking water and some eating at all times so you don't get a big flush at the water tank or at the uh, hay yeah. pile so and that was kind of my problem when we tried it uh we well we were, had a few wrecks with it i mean at the time i think we needed like 15 bales per cow or for 15 bales per just so we could get roughly enough head space yep. And that seemed like a lot, especially with mud season. And that's the advantage of unrolling is you can stretch that out so far that everyone gets access. Uh, Like I said, perfect world, or if we were in more of an arid environment where we didn't fight the mud. Yeah, fuel was free. Yeah, I would unroll every day of the year. But Well, and like my own bale grazing that I've done this year on on a different kind of study, um, you know, I was, you know, headspace was was pretty minimal because I was about 20 cows per bale. And with that, the only way that works is just like you're saying, you know, you get that initial rush, they get that room in full, they go ruminate somewhere, they head the water, then those more timid cows come in behind them, mm-hmm. you know, but if you don't have that kind of, you know, aggressive Cycle. and timidness in your herd, then it doesn't work. Yep. Yeah. And so we, like when we were doing it, you know, we had stalker cattle. Right, so we're trying to put weight on stalker cattle. You know, we got bred heifers, we got open heifers, we got pears, we've got spring bred cows. You know, with running such of a, a mixed bag, we were sacrificing some places, and no one's gonna out eat and out compete of dry cow. Yep, yep. And so, for our situation, it did did not seem to be beneficial. Plus, when we were buying in some cattle, baby calves born. And a bale grazing yard will lay at the base of the bale, yep. and those bales will slough off onto them, and the next cow will not see them. Yep, and that's that's something we're 
we had some bull issues, so we're kind of spread out on calving, and we're slowly grouping back up. So, I had, like I said, I had a couple stragglers that were born in the last month, just surprise calves that we weren't supposed to have. But yeah, um, for the most part, that that was one of our biggest changes. Is we cut out all the winter calving cows for that reason yeah. because it, we had some. Yeah, we had a couple that. Well, and I think that's too. what worked really well for me is, you know, everything is in a very tight window there into summer, early fall as fall caver. And, you know, that let me really creep graze, if you will, because I just ran the wire high enough that all my calves could get through and mm. they're, they're big enough. They can utilize it. You yeah, know, and, and you're that, not worried about them getting exactly. trampled. So yeah. to, to run the wire high enough, are you using like a standard pigtail? Yep. Or? Okay. Yeah. And so, just the calves going underneath it. Yeah. Most of them, you know, they're right at that height where it'll, it'll get them, but they'll just yeah, run they'll just through. Yeah, they'll under. Yeah. They can arch their back like a son of a gun. Yep. Uh, they have figured that out on the high tensile by the house. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, we talked about, you talked about your little lot, your bale grazing. I mean, you're kind of in the same boat I am with, like right now, you know, kind of at the start we talked about, I'm feeding with a neighbor on one side of the paddock county road on the north side you know there's a creek on the other uh on the west side and then another one of my paddocks on the south um so from like a nutrient distribution and working on soil health actually from an underground standpoint and bacteria mycorrhizal fungi you know um when we're feeding hey do you think people should be feeding closer to the center and like on some of your better ground where it ripples out or or do you guys think that you know just feeding hay in a paddock you know right underneath that bale is kind of where all your nutrients is concentrated and i should you know we shouldn't be looking out further than the 20 acre paddock we're feeding in and I'd say some of that's going to depend where they're going to low fat to. Um, you know, are they going to, majority of the time, they're probably going to loaf around that bale. So that's where the bulk's going to be. Like my situation, <laughs> I put just the way the, it, the way the field lays, it's a, it's a rectangle. Um, I've got water in two different corners. So I put my protein tubs in the opposite corner of the bale grazing and the bale grazing. Yep. So I've got something that they have to utilize in every corner. Yep. So there's some, they're forced to walk all over the thing. I still think the bulk of my nutrients is going to be where the bales was at, not just because of the cow standing there, but the fertility in the bales. Yeah. But yeah. And it's going to just stay underneath it. Yeah. I would, I would look at it on a field to field basis. I mean, where you're doing that at is where you're going to see the good the amount of time it would take for any of those microbes that you've kind of rebuilt those populations to get to a new field. Mm -hmm. You've probably already fed hay there and and you've bailed grace there by the time they would have reached it. Okay. Um, Because I mean, there's some, because there's never really been a lot of studies with that, but there is one, they've done it a couple of different times to try to prove or disprove it, but where they've taken plugs out of virgin prairie and they've inoculated, recreated prairies and trying to get those microbes to move. Mm-hmm. And basically they look at it, they'll come back through, you know, I don't remember all the details, but every so many years they'll basically soil sample so many feet from where those plugs went in and see how far microbes have moved. Mm-hmm. It takes forever. <laughs> okay. Yeah, because that's, what, you know, like the analogy they use, you know, or the slide they use is the water droplet into a pond, right? And it ripples out, and you know, and that's, you know, your bale is the water droplet, right? And then everything that ripples is all your, all the good yeah. that comes from it. And I just was curious on the rippling effect. Like if, you know, if I'm feeding next to my neighbor, is he, 
going to be feeling the effect of the rippling. Unless you're feeding on the fence line, I don't think he's going to feel it. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Well, that's just, uh, you know, something that I've always well, thought about. Like, I was like, man, I've, you know, I've only, I've fed damn near close to a hundred, a hundred bales in that paddock already. And I was like, well, you know, that just dawned on me. Like, oh my gosh, am I going to just be the county road ditch is going to be full of nutrients? I mean, if you get runoff. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. You know, and talking about just management having an impact on other areas, like our neighbors, we're, we're in predominant row crop country again. So, like, right across the road from us, there, I know the latent seed bank in that field's the same as what we've got in our pastures, but we've got big blue stem and other natives starting to pop yeah. up in our ditches, and the neighbors don't. Um, so, you know, it's not crossing the gravel road or what, whatever. It it. it it's going to kind of stick around to what you're managing for, in my opinion. I don't think they're going to see yeah. too much benefit from you. Sounds good. Um, anything else you guys want to add to bale grazing or unrolling? I mean, like you said, I mean, we unroll quite a bit. Um, we unroll everything. I like to have the headspace. I like... I mean, the uniform distribution is huge. Like, the, the fields we unrolled in last year, um, like so we, we unrolled until it got wet. We had some stuff preset for being wet. Mm-hmm. Those fields responded a lot better. Now, like, taking soil samples, everything responded very well as far as fertility went. Um, yep. but, but what was actually able to be grazed this last growing season was better where we unrolled hay versus where we bale grazed. Yep. So, so what do you see? you know after you bale graze you know what how, how does that affect that forage base underneath it huge flood okay and, and so where we did it last year this year will be a better test into a conventional pasture because i did it in probably what is my most fertile pasture this year just because of water situation um and so i'll have a better answer this summer where we did it last year was old row crop that was reconverted and it's just been slow 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 to catch them back on so that was part of the reason we did it there like hey let's see if we can kind of nucleus with some animal impacts and microbes and see if it wakes it up um we had a lot of ragweed a lot of broad leaves woke up and came on with it mm-hmm. now towards the end of the summer there was a lot of grass it's more of a downy brome and that kind of okay, stuff yeah. coming on so it's it's not any real good perennials yet but you can see that secession happening within one year where it's been five or six years before just coming out of row crop where it was really slow yeah. yeah when we did it we did it on blackberry bushes okay and uh you know basically so when the cows ate it right and that mat grew out but right where the mat ended right then we got a heavy flush of blackberries so you could see where the bale was and then where you know they pulled it apart till till basically they didn't pull it yeah. anymore and then it was like shaboom and we saw that too i don't know if is, is it a australia or africa where they got the fairy rings where they'll just be like yeah. a dead zone and then like, there's this huge flush of uh, yeah. vegetation around it it was it was similar to that like it wasn't dead inside the bale but it was dead for I half mean, the year yeah and, and the then, mushrooms and then, well, the mushrooms we had was out of this yes. world on that and, you and know it was yeah it just a different profile from what you're seeing in your mm-hmm. usual pasture so yeah. um yeah but one thing we do is uh, we unroll, and then if we got, like, the back blackberry bushes or something we want to target per, for that day or for the the duration we're feeding in that paddock, you know, so we'll unroll anywhere from half to three-quarters of a bale. Then we'll take that core, and then I'll just pack them to that yep. area and kind of disperse them. The cows will rough them up, eat them around, and 
But then we get kind of that bale grazing impact mm-hmm. on direct areas while we're still kind of spreading out nutrients on hilltops or whatever. That's, I mean, that seems to work, but in a year with bales are pretty expensive, you know, to get them to utilize, you know, we're like flirting right with that line of having just the right amount to maybe a little much on one day, a little less on the other, you know, as we're flirting with that line. Uh, I think the fuel, (laughs) spending the little extra money on fuel to, I mean, we're going to have to set them out anyway. They're all stacked in our barn. Yeah. So taking that time to unroll them is, I mean, I'm going to have to pack them anyway. Might as well just take the little extra time to unroll them. Yeah. And I like the way they clean it up better and I can cover more ground unrolling. Yeah. Like I said, there's, yeah. Perfect, perfect world. That's what I do every day. Free fuel, everything else. And I have all the time in the world. That's what I do. Yeah. But like. Nothing's going to be bale grazing when you want to get away. Yep. It, it It's a really nice tool for impact. It's a nice tool for being able to go off and go to a school, take your wife on vacation, whatever you want to do yep. in the middle of, in, in the middle of winter. Yeah. Which, you know, what you should, right? Yep. And, you know, everybody, you know, well, a lot of people get caught up with you unroll. Like, I'm only going to unroll. You know, some people are only going to bale graze. Well, I think there's all sorts of tools. You know, use rings, don't use rings, don't feed hay, feed hay. You know, at all, there, every practice can be used in different periods of people's time. I mean, there's sometimes yep. I wish I did have a few bale rings for different things, but whatever. Well, and I think the best way to force yourself to do that is if you can only unroll if it's on the on the flatbed. Mm-hmm. You can't get a truck out there every every day of the winter. Yeah. So then you're forced to do something else the other days. So, you know, thinking of the farm before I took over, that was how they differentiated. If mm-hmm. it was frozen enough or dry enough, they unrolled. If it was too muddy, you ran the tractor out and you just popped in a ring or you, you know, went without a ring and had a, you know, some of the impact of bale grazing without the, you know, intent behind bale grazing. Yep. So you still kept a little bit of that controlled chaos in a way, yep. which I think is good. Yeah. And are you guys doing any seeding? So we looked at some erosion issues. We, I think I've talked about it maybe a little time before. Um, and we thought maybe adding some seed this winter to it. And then we, I asked about unrolling on top of it do you guys are you guys adding any seed or utilizing buying prairie hay to get some native seed we've done that in some drought like whenever they'll have a drought clause where we can hay crp um Mm -hmm. and this is probably dumb from the hay standpoint but we normally have had enough hay in the past of quality we would bale some of the crp late whenever it had seed heads whether that be gamma indian or big blue stem and we'll move that to a Move that to areas of the farm that don't have native seed, just for hope. You know, maybe a couple. Yeah, I mean, take seed off. hay is a really good way to get diversity moved. We've yeah, that, that's been one of our biggest factors, and what like pure fescue stands, how you get something else there that yep. you know it's been cropped for forty years, so you don't know what's in the latent seed bank or what's yeah. left. It's it's a good way to reinoculate stuff fairly cheaply. Um, Are you unrolling that to cover more ground? You bale grazing. I will try to unroll that hay in particular if in that's, that situation. That's kind of the standard when you're doing seed hay. So that's that's like a way that, that you can move diversity, just thinking of it from the, I don't care about the quality, I don't care about the hay, I just want to move it. They're going to do, they're going to unroll it. Yep. Um, and I guess on my side of things, um, you know, the only hay I've fed this winter 
there at Wardak is um, part of a bale grazing and ring and unrolling study. Yeah. And that was just to see if I could get native grasses established in a living fescue sod without using a no-till drill. And was that prairie hay, native hay, or so this is uh, this is all hay I cut off the farm. So that's going to be a mix of some of the first bit I put out that was all crabgrass had no seed heads on it. So mm-hmm. probably some of the better hay I put up this year, and the rest of it was all um, orchard grass mixed with clover. Just kind of not fescue, but there's fescue in it. Mm-hmm. So basically, what I did laid it uh, kind of got the idea, you know, talking to some folks. Yeah, that's the biggest issue is either, A, I don't have a no-till drill and I don't want to rent one. I don't have the tractor that can pull a no-till drill. You know, I just don't have enough horsepower. Or, you know, I don't want to go through the hassle of that and I've got a three-point spreader in the barn. So, basically thought, what would my grandfather do? Yeah. And then talked to some other people and they said the same thing. Um, so, thinking of that, put out... Uh, about six and a half pounds of Indian grass and the remainder to make 10 pounds total of uh, big blue stem broadcast that out with a three point spreader and then did bale grazing on a third of that field. It's about a three and a half acre field. And that was, that was much lower than what Cody did. Cause I was probably seven or eight tons to the acre. Mm-hmm. So not a whole lot of impact, but I was going after hoof action. Okay. And then did another bit, same amount tons per acre, but fed in rings. Yep. And then unrolled at the same same amount of tons per acre. Um, so bale grazing wise, that doesn't look that bad. Where I fed in rings, I mean, it looks like you ran a rototiller through it. Yeah. So if and it's gonna work anywhere, it's probably gonna work there. Really? And see, I would have think like where their front feet would be around the ring, right? Going in yep. and out. You're. Cr- I would guess that you would have the least amount of luck with that because it'd get too deep but well it'll that be all too depends deep. on it may be too deep but also it's going to kill out the fescue oh. so it's giving it a chance yeah so there's like a there's it, a balance and i don't know if i've hit it right and you know time will tell but yeah um the thing that i don't think will work is honestly unrolling yeah so, i don't think there's enough disturbance no, no no but in the essence of science yep. we threw that out there um you know you talked about the weeds, and I guess my thought on this is, you know, can I put the weeds I want out being native warm season grass seed? Yep. Yeah, and, and, and I would think you could. Just yeah, judging by how much we have flush we had, and we had a lot of, again, different ragweed species. Mm. I'm fine with that. I mean, I've got a video of dumping the cows out in that probably in late June, early July. Um, it was the first time we'd hit that pasture since mm-hmm. bale grazing. They went nuts for the – we all know, all of us sitting here, you know, cattle, yeah, they love ragweed. So um, it didn't yeah. bother me seeing that. It looked ugly to my neighbors, but yeah. um, what I think is pretty, what my neighbor thinks is pretty is two separately different things. Um, yeah, I mean, I'll take a field of ragweed over alfalfa any day. Yep, yep. And it'll, it'll survive in a drought. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I think we covered quite a bit right now. You guys want to take a break? and Yeah. I have gonna have to take a leak yeah that sounds good to me <laughs> all right we'll pause it here <laughs> and i trust we're, you to get it back yeah and we're back <laughs> had to take a pee sell some beef um refill now we're rolling um talked about bale grazing talked about f- feeding grounds where we're gonna feed um i mean you want to talk about some natives 
Gamma Grass, you guys have both been planting. Have, well, Cody, I know, has yep. been planting some Gamma Grass. Um, yep, I have in the past. I <laughs> uh, had yeah, a got- Gatlin's my uh, native guru, so whenever I come screwing something up, I don't really call Gatlin. Yeah, and then I sent some guys your way. I don't know if he ever called the co-op. He did, and I completely forgot till just now. So, yeah, it was <laughs> the called, week I went to Billings. So. Yeah, called the co-op on uh, yep. Gamma Grass. I mean, something that intrigues me. We use it as a decorative grass around our house. I harvest the seed and I throw it out while I'm riding around on a four wheeler. But you guys are actually buying the seed and planting it. And that is a volatile market from what I noticed last year because I bought enough to do five to eight acres and it was seventeen fifty a pound. And when I called back later in the summer when I talked myself into planting more acres of it, it was thirty four dollars a pound. So I I planted wow. the initial seeding and I must have hit just right in the middle because when I bought it it was twenty seven fifty. Yep, yep. <laughs> it, 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 a pound how many pounds to the acre? Uh, uh eight to ten. Yeah. Oh and I think my God. I so, sp- so you're l- roughly two hundred pounds two hundred dollars to an acre if you're gonna plant ten. Yep. Plus the drill rental, which is ten dollars an acre, yep. so you're and at then, and depending on how you're doing it, you're going to have a little bit of cost in, you know, herbicide, fertilizer. Yep. You know, it gets up there. And and that's unprimed seed. If you want to buy a prime yeah. seed that you can just roll right in. So, it, so gamma grass, and I, Gatlin can explain this better. Um, it, yeah, it's yeah. It's hard so your, seed. Like, your gamma grass has a dormant seed, and not all of your native warm season grasses have it. Most have it to a degree, but gamma grass is the, is the one. Yeah. And uh, basically... You can either buy prime seed that they've put a chemical on and it will just germinate just like you'd plant anything else, mm-hmm. or you've got to plant it in the wintertime. So okay. winter planting, it goes through cold, it stratifies, then it'll come up. And that's with that hard seed yeah. skeleton? Uh, is it like an exoskeleton? So, it's similar to your clover. Is it like Yeah, it, yeah. So, so, so you like planting on a frost yeah. or like a snowfall. You need a certain period of vernalization or... or yeah, you've got to go through so many days of cold. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, gamma grass, you're basically like November to end of January. It's as late as I'd probably plant it. Okay. I've, think I, th- I hit right in the middle i was somewhere in december i was shooting for deer season and yeah. i had a, some issues with my my planner and my drill so by the time mm-hmm. i got the drill hooked up i uh, it was mid-december right before a hard freeze and it went in so we'll see what it turns into so i think i ended up at like 14 pounds per acre because it's a drill so it's a controlled oh, yeah. spill and i yeah overseeded but uh, um before we talk about why we're planting gamma grass um somebody's talked about running it through like pasture broilers or pasture layers you know they were like I mean, it was Greg Judy. Uh, I went up to a farm tour with him, um, and they were putting gamma grass in a uh, like their chicken feed. Okay, and their thought was the thought was at the time was the croup would break that exoskeleton, make it, and then package it in a pile of nutrients. Right, so then yeah. it was ready to roll. Um, so. On some dormant seeds, that'll work. Okay. But not all. So on gamma, you have mechanical and innate dormancy. So basically, the mechanical is that hard seed coat, yep. and the innate is that part that it has to just go through a cold period. Yep. Um, you know, but things that just have a hard seed coat, like clover or whatever, mm-hmm. you run that through a bird, it will come up. Okay. And that's why you see it come up in cow piles, right? Exactly. Because it runs through a cow. Yep. And my brother did a, he's an engineer, did a capstone, right? And mm-hmm. 
guy wanted, he's out in uh, at, at Bozeman, I guess it's Montana State. I don't know. I don't we'll know. say yeah. Yes. <laughs> We're going to go with <laughs> Missoula's the Grizzlies. That's all I know. Okay. Right. So it was out of, these my, are the out of my price cat. range when I went to college. <laughs> these so. are the Bobcats, I think. Yep, so yeah. he's out at Montana State, Capstone Engineering, you know, and his project was a mineral feeder that would scatter, it would deposit seeds into the mineral to shit them out and plant across his pasture. And he called me about it because I think I was the only one surrounded by agriculture at the time, you mm-hmm. know, out of all the other classmates, you know. And I'd heard a little bit about it, you know. Um, you know, I think the Red Hills Rancher did, like, the Milpa through his mineral. But a lot of that is, I mean, when you're put, mixing seed with a salt, right, in that drying that out. And, and I've had luck with clover and bird's foot trefoil limit oxide. The clover did really good. The bird's fit trefoil was limited success. In the mineral? In the mineral. Okay. Um, but, yeah, I think if you had more of a fleshy seed or a bigger seed, you could run into some issues with drying it, but that's just my guess. I don't. Uh, yes and no. I mean, your, your seed is hard. So unless, unless, you know, you've got a bunch of water in there in that mm-hmm. feeder or something and it's trying to imbibe salt, salt. water – that into salt the probably, seed. yeah, that salt probably doesn't matter. Okay. Okay. But so in that case, a carrier of the salt, like the carrier would be yep. the mineral. Yep. Of a hard seed in a dry environment would, like a, like of a gamma grass seed, do you think when it passes through that cow, it would be a viable seed? Or is that rumen and those microbes, are they breaking that down past the, I guess, is it the stage of viability? You know, if it's just hard seed, then then it's probably going to come out the other end and, and germinate. Really? Um, but if it has an innate dormancy as well, mm-hmm. that's got to go through cold. So gamma grass, I don't think, is the one to do it. Because it's got that innate yep. dormancy that has to go through cold. Exactly. What, what seed, let's just... As we're just discussing yeah. this and breaking this out, what seed would not have that innate? Most dormancy? of your clovers. Okay. So. So a legume. Yeah, most of your legumes. Um, Is there a, a native grass though? I mean, you know, with the exception of gamma grass, most of your native grasses don't have enough enough dormancy to worry about them. More mm-hmm. of a fluffy seed, a smaller. I don't know how to yeah. describe them, but they're like they're, they're not. Yeah, you know, like you can't pack them. Or, yep. you know. Yeah, so okay. probably your your next most dormant one is probably little blue stem. Mm-hmm. Because if you ever look at the seed tag on a bag of little blue stem, it's just abysmal. I mean, your pure live seed might be good, but then it says like, oh, 71% is dormant. Um, you know, so I don't know how that one's going to react just because I don't know if that one is, you know, physical and innate or, or what it is. Yeah. But, you know, if you're just dealing with physical dormancy, you know, all, almost all of your your native legumes, you know, be that the native lespedizas, the native uh, clovers, you know, getting into like partridge pea or anything else. I mean, mm-hmm. you throw that through a cow, it's probably going to come up. And something Gatlin and I have talked about a couple times on just on our own. Um, two years ago, we had that hard freeze. Mm-hmm. We noticed a lot more native seed coming out of that. So, like, we had a, 
a lot more Eastern Gamma coming up in mixes. Yeah. Um, I don't believe they were in the CRP mixes, but they've shown up. Th- these particular farms have been in grass for a long period of time, so I think it's coming out of the latent seed bank. Um, we actually collected some seed in some roadside ditches, yeah. and on at my in-laws have a little patch of grass uh, on one of their farms, and there's this little clump of gamma grass up there um so i've got it in where i planted i planted it on outside i've got a specific spot i planted it um and we saw some pretty decent varietal differences just in that on top of the partridge pea um false indigo there's so many species that started coming out culver's root this this last year's the first time i've seen it um i've seen a lot more natives expressing themselves since whatever that was 2020 I i think it was yeah with those big and there seems like lately per year we've had some pretty good hard freezing events yeah and, and so i don't know if it's that the droughts what, whatever we I mean, got it's, going it's, on we're There's getting some, the perfect storm to get away from all of our introduced species yes and, and that's what i was going to say so my year in minnesota you know everyone talks about brome just taking over in some of those northern environments when i was up there i was seeing big blue stem all over but it, it was because brome had either stunted out because of drought or because of hard winters or something, whatever the reason was, a lot of the uh, introduced species, like Gatlin's saying, disappeared. Um, and so it's opening up the window for the uh, natives mm-hmm. to finally come through. So Because that, that's really the thing. You know, our introduced species, there's, you know, I'm, I'm hesitant to say there's nothing wrong with them, but, like, they fill a good niche where they're right. Mm-hmm. But if anything goes wrong beyond that perfect environment we put them in, then something else is going to replace it. So be that, you know, big blue stem replacing brome, be that Indian grass replacing fescue. If you don't have the right environment to keep that introduced species in, something's going to replace it. So Mm -hmm. that's the beauty of it is we have enough seeds in the seed bank for the most part that something good is probably going to replace it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's going to be what we traditionally think of as weeds, but you graze it right, you give it a chance. But as a na- let's say weeds, right? Yep. Is a native forb a bad thing? No. Yeah. Like no, that- I mean, me of all people, I mean, I very rarely, you know, I'm, I'm, I struggle to find something I will truly consider a weed. Yeah. I mean, like, I mean, Himalayan blackberries, multiflora rose, but those aren't native. Mm-hmm. And so, like, when we looked at, like, those native what were those when you touched them and they uh, sensitive briar sensitive briar right with a little purple flower that is that is cow food close to the ground which is crazy because it's a, a stickery mess but so yeah. the thing with that though is and and this took me a long time to to figure out because i have the habit of going around and just eating weeds and um the thing to remember is your tongue is nowhere near as rough as a cow's tongue mm-hmm. so what you know, is going to give you a scratch on your arm or whatever, probably wouldn't even phase a cow's mouth. Well, the, the day we went around prairie cord grass, yeah. like, we, we, like we were walking around in, in my pastures after a field day with Harry and uh, just kind of checking some stuff out. And, you know, we're tasting big blue stem, like prairie cord grass, like the texture of it is not pleasant to yeah, us. Disclaimer, never try to eat prairie cord grass. <laughs> I have done it. You don't have to. It will tear you up. <laughs> It, but the cows, they love it at a certain yep. point. So, like, to, yeah, again, to our hands, to our tongue, n- not a pleasant experience. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, your heifers, before I drove down here, I noticed that there was one of them kind of licking her tongue out, and just, I got some in a ditch right next to my house. She's just taking the little tops off of the prairie cord grass that stockpiled. Okay. So. Yeah, and so, like, it's that kind of stuff. You know, it's so neat to see, but without observation, without spending a little time. I mean, that's where spending time with cattle. Oh, yeah. 
man, is so valuable and so overlooked. Yeah, what's the the saying? The the boots down, eyes on the ground, or whatever. There's yep, something to be, definitely something to be said about that. Yeah. Um, and we could, <laughs> we kind of strayed away with uh, where we were going when I asked about the chickens breaking it down. But uh, the other part I wanted to get is why are like why do people want to incorporate gamma grass? You know, in these systems, why are we using gamma grass? Um, basically. I mean, from my understanding, right, we want to implement gamma grass because it uh, it allows uh, uh, us to graze something else minus the fescue, right? Yeah. During the fescue slump. Yeah, so gamma grass, I mean, it's it's not your earliest warm season grass. That's really filled by switchgrass, that role. But, you know, gamma grass and fescue really complement each other well because yeah. right as your fescue is starting to kind of – you know, lose production, go dormant for the summer, your gamma grass picks it up. Okay. So, you know, the two work well together. Gamma grass, just the the architecture of the plant, you have this big, robust bunch grass. It's going to be tall. It's going to shade things out. Even though fescue is incredibly aggressive, that sod-forming grass, gamma grass, if you get them established right, they work well together. And... Right, because we have fescue that's aleopathic, right, similar to cedar trees, right? So it's sending off chemical signals that are basically warning other plants from growing in that area is my understanding. So the allelopathy of fescue is is still kind of up for debate, but the ability of it to form mycorrhizal relationships can kind of be the the issue there. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't form it in the same way that that other plants do. So they're just not as fit when it comes to that microbial relationship. Which is key. It is, yeah. To any sort of growing situation. Yes, and, and that's really where that gamma grass can come in is, you know, you've got that C3 versus C4, warm versus cool season, um, cool season versus warm season, excuse me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're, you're occupying a different functional group as well as one of them can make a, a relationship with your microbes. One of them can but doesn't make as strong of a relationship. Okay. So that's how they, that's how they can fit together. Yeah. And so some of these... I mean, from both of your podcasts, right, your episodes, mm-hmm. I've had questions about, well, you know, if black cattle, fescue pasture, monocrop culture works for me, why are we wanting to change the change it? Uh, I say 2012 drought. You, do you I, think, yeah. Do you think a big blue stem, eastern game of grass, Indian grass will survive there where fescue? I mean, that's that's part of what got me interested in it. Same. Is, you know, we had a little bit of big blue stem, a little bit of Indian grass that had come back on the on the family farm, and that was the only green thing. Everything mm-hmm. else was crispy, you know, beyond brown, and you know they weren't doing the best, but they were still alive and they were still green. Yeah, they're they're adapted to these soils, to this environment. Um, so they they have lived through a drought that's as bad as we've we're going to currently see or have ever seen. There's some. <laughs> Something in their DNA that's probably going to express better than what tall fescue yeah. is, in my in my opinion. That's oh yeah, well no, a hundred percent, right? It's like us only eating one thing and saying yep. we're going to be healthy, right? Yeah. You eat lettuce for you know every day of yeah. your life, and you're and maybe get a protein shake here mm-hmm. and there, and the you know that representing a protein tub for a cow. It's like 
you got to be shitting me if you think that's going to make you <laughs> if that's going to make you healthy. Well, out of Billings, I think I had pizza three nights in a row, and it was it wasn't on purpose. It's just people kept inviting us to pizza joints. I'm like, yeah, this is great pizza, but man, I want a burger right now. Yeah, I need so, some meat. <laughs> yeah, give yeah. me something else. But. Yeah, and and to think that you know a monocrop of fescue, right, and it's green, right? Even if it's green, three hundred and sixty four days out of the year. You know, that's crazy to think that your cow is thriving on a monocrop of fescue. And I thought, like, in that example um, during the first uh, podcast you had where I had the sheep just on strictly fescue pasture, and I had that was more of my train wreck was that. And I really do think that was a component of it is all they had. Like, I was trying to use them to knock the fescue back and hopefully get some forbs and other things coming through. I'm... There was other components to that, but they were eating one thing for months on months on months at a time. And it's crazy. Um, And so I think there was some mineral deficiencies, and I thought I was addressing it with my mineral, but yeah. Well, I mean, even at a minimum, we have been preaching for the last 130 years to add clover, to add lespidiza, to add something Mm -hmm. to that monoculture of grass. Yep. You know, so whether that be an introduced species, whether that be a native species, running one thing does not make success. Yeah. If you have nothing but big blue stem, you're going to fail. Yep. If you have nothing but fescue, you're going to fail. You're going to fail or you're going to input your way out of it. Yes. Right. And your genetics are going to need to be altered. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, I don't know, that's just crazy to me, you know, because, right, we're going to put fescue out there, monocrop, we're going to add a, maybe a pro, we're going to prescribe a protein supplement. We're going to prescribe a mineral supplement to try to do this. And then, you know, yeah, you might be keeping your cow alive. She might be fat. Is she fat because of the protein supplement? You know, is she thriving? Is she healthy? Are you producing the most nutrient dense product? I don't, I don't know. I'd be hard pressed to think that something eating the same just one one plant per se, right? She might be getting a bite of ragweed here and there or some other grass. But if on a predominantly fescue pasture with a protein supplement, is her nutrient analysis of her meat, is that going to be comparable to something eating a polyculture of forages and thriving on rock salts and, you know, well water? Yeah, and... I can't remember where they did the research study at. It might have been Fred Provenza. Um, mm-hmm. And they said, you know, they sent grad students out somewhere out like Utah or yep. somewhere out in the Rocky Mountain West. And they followed a cow around for a couple months out of a time. And, like, that particular cow picked the perfect diet. Like, mm-hmm. you know, they had cows in dry lot that they're feeding the the prescribed ration or whatever. Yeah. And then they have a cow out on range, and she's going through, you know, we talk about do animals have nutritional wisdom? Do they not? You know, in a big enough environment, yeah, I think they do. Um, if they're ranging across thousands of acres, you know, that's the challenge as you come back east. Um, we have extremely productive soils and extremely productive environments, but we, you know, they're not going to go walk down to a salt lake that's 50 miles away from us because of we're on we're working on quarter sections around here versus 100,000 acre chunks. Um, so we, we have to do the best to provide them that polyculture and provide them the correct minerals that yeah. may not reach that. So, you know, it, uh, you know, I think Gatlin, you've said it one time, there's nothing natural about raising cattle in, in, in America currently. Uh, it, there really isn't. Because it, it, it is not, you know, we're, we're trying to emulate these ecosystems, but 
at the end of the day, all we are doing is emulating it. So we're, we're going to manage as close as we can. Um, yeah, and I'm not what, saying that these guys are wishing ill will yeah. or doing this out of, you know, with bad intentions. But it seems like from, I guess it ultimately comes down to a nutrient density of the animal protein in the, the I guess, un, you know, net profit, potentially. Or, you know, just from an animal health standpoint, you know, mixing it up, polycultures. I mean, yeah, like Fred Provenza, you referred to, his audiobook, Nourishment, just came, yep. you know, his audio version of Nourishment just came out. I think it's really out. condensed from, I, I, haven't, I yeah. bought it, but I haven't started it yet, so. It, yep, it, it, yeah, it's very, but, you know, he talks about, you know, an orphanage and, you know, providing all these foodstuffs, right? For these orphans to select from, and each time, and each day, each night, you know, each kid selected a different diet. No two diets were ever alike. No two diets were the same. No kid selected the same diet. You know, it's you know, you provide as a farmer or a rancher. You know, providing the, you know, the polyculture of forages and letting your animals decide what they want to eat right, or need to eat, that's when, you know, we're making these genetic gains, in my opinion, that's when we're making these nutrient density gains for our meat, you know, herd health, everything starts running in sync when we, when we manage to provide a polyculture of forages. Well, and I think if you go back to what Cody said, you know, there's, the further east you go, mm -hmm. the harder and harder it is for you to provide that opportunity for them to choose what they want to eat. Why is that? Because if you're on, let's say you're on, you know, a 4,000 acre piece of ground, mm -hmm. that has everything that cow needs potentially on that 4,000 acres. Yeah. The only thing that limits them is just their ability to walk to it. But, you know, of all the farmers I work with, I know two that have 4,000 acres or more. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the average farm, what are we at, 240 acres? I think, yeah, yeah per Missouri, right? Yeah. 200 so, with 30 cows. You know, you have a lot smaller area that, you know, that one plant that's providing whatever that cow needs, mm -hmm. she's going to find it, she's going to eat it, she's yep. going to overgraze it, and then it's not going to be there. But if she has to walk 20 miles to get to it, it's probably going to regrow by the time she gets back to it. And that's where management comes in, right? So that's where management comes in, exactly. So, you know, providing all of the species you can, mm -hmm. providing, you know, the correct coaxing to, okay, cows, you need to be over here or you need to not be there. Yep. Stockmanship, steward, you know, land steward. Management is what makes raising cattle east of the Rockies a viable thing. Mm -hmm. Yep. And, and, you know, like we were talking earlier, like, so my family's operation, 550 acres. We have four soil types. Yeah. I don't know what my county has because I know there's some other farms lay around me that have like probably 13 to 14 soil types as you get into some areas where we drop off into river bottoms and stuff. I mean, for example, like my family's farm, we have 12, 135 acres. Yeah. And, and so 550, we have I would say four. we're closer to that. It, it, what Gatlin's saying. We just happen to lay, like it, it's goofy, the farms that we have bought from family members and stuff, they just lay on a similar, similar area in mm -hmm. the county uh, it's, it's in different spots but we're all on top of the prairie every one of our farms we don't have the hill ground we don't have 
we have one creek bottom. There's a couple creeks, but there's one that's really far down in the soil profile. Um, mm-hmm. It may have a fifth soil type, that particular farm. But, yeah. So, I have four soil types basically on 550 yep. acres. So, that's going to express a certain plant profile. Um, so, so, talking about the smaller landscape thing, just to kind of touch on that. So, that, that's what we're dealing with versus, you know, come down here. And you guys have a lot more hills and hollers. So, um, yeah. you're going to go through that soil strata and the... Uh, geological strategy yeah and we talked about that a little bit like one of the neat parts is um you know we got this 50 acre creek bottom right behind us and if you look at a soils map on as i guess like the productive ratio the actually most productive ground is like a little holler up over the next hill north just north of us um and it's just a strip of grass that runs this creek you know but you know, when you get up there and start looking around, you know, there's Indian mounds, there's, you know, it's out of the wind, you know, it's pretty neat to see, I mean, like the Indians knew, I guess the Indian, I'm not exactly sure what an Indian mound is, if that was like where the chief's lodge was, or if it's burial or whatever, but something about that, you know, that valley that runs through, you know, the two hillsides, you know, is where they decided they would set up something of significance with a mound yeah i've I've got a rented farm um and it's got a spring and some stuff on it and maybe maybe 200 yards down the hill from where the spring's at mm-hmm. um there, there's a four-lane highway yeah that, that's the bulk of the 400 yards running caddy corner um right at the bottom of where that spring kind of dumps out at yeah um there's an indian mound um and they, they farm I, I think it's all row cropped on that particular piece, but there's been a mound there, and it's funny every year they'll grow, they'll grow and it'll dry out and stunt out on that mound, but you can see right where it's at. Huh. Uh, but that's crazy. So but, kind of similar similar ordeal. There was some reason they knew that, and it's it's extremely productive farm. If yeah, you, you very like that valley is it, very productive. Cows love to be down yep. in there. When we had that was a lunar eclipse, uh, yeah, two, two years ago. Yeah. That actually was where our cows were during the lunar eclipse was down on the mid Indian mounds and stuff. And it was, I mean, it was pretty neat, you know, to see how they graze and utilize that space. It seems like they utilize it differently than when we go out of, you know, get away from that productive ground or, you know, whether it's something to do with, I don't, I don't know. It just, they just handle that paddock. It's its own paddock now. Yeah. The way we fenced it and watered it. In, in our ground lays a little different, like where we're at, you know, um, our most productive ground is the highest up. And again, we're, we're extremely, you, you both have been up there. Mm-hmm. It's extremely flat ground where we're at. Um, but the most productive ground in that immediate area without going to a major river is the top of the prairie. It, as you go down the hill slopes, it, you lose productivity. And, you know, at the bases, there may be some really good ground too. But a lot of times when you get down to the creeks, it's, it's gravel bottoms versus being like really good deep silt like you would you would find on a bigger river that gets out frequently, but well, and you know, thinking about that, your where your product, you know, your productivity lies. You know, I have twelve soil types on one hundred and thirty-five acres. If I put fescue on all of those, it's still fescue. Yep. But some of it's going to be good. Some of it's going to be pretty poor. You you basically run with that monoculture idea that uh, you know. Just because I can grow it there doesn't mean I should grow it there. Yep. So, you know, thinking of productivity, you're probably more suited to grow fescue than I am on most of it. I mean, the most productive I have is 11 and silt loam, and it's probably middle of the road for what you have. Um, but that's 
four acres of the 135. Yep. You know, when you start getting into gravelly complexes, it really throws a whole different wrench. In you, you sent me some <laughs> pictures of some wheat fields that no one in the right man mind in my area would plant. But and those were productive. Yeah, yeah. It, the, the wheat looked great, and I just yeah, it, it was to blew my mind that yeah, yeah. Oh, um, that, that yeah, it's all about context and where you're at and what you're growing and um yeah um and that's that's one of our things you know we're converting ground at a row crop and everyone in my area thinks i'm nuts because mm-hmm. i don't want to grow corn and beans and whatever but in my mind we have extremely productive soils and the, when they settled that area you know we've got some farms i know of one farm right next to one of my family's homesteads and it was settled in like 1833 i believe so uh-huh. we you know they were settling that land within 60 years of 60 70 years of the country being formed um and when they settled there, there were no trees in our area. Um, mm-hmm. the, in the river bottoms, you might have gotten in some, into some trees, but they talked about uh, right down the road from my wife's grandparents' house, they called it uh, Lone Elm because there was one elm tree, one elm tree, sorry, in the in that area. So we were true tall grass prairie. And yeah. getting to hear people talk about, you know, they want trees for the wildlife and whatnot, which, which is yeah, there's some wildlife that will live in the trees, but it's not what was native to this area when, yeah. we, when we were there, or, or my area at least. And so there's a big difference from where I'm at to you guys. You know, two-hour drive changes pretty drastically in Missouri. Um, but as far as an ecosystem, it's not all that different because, correct. you know, uh, well, I guess to, to backtrack up to, like, your area, uh, my in-laws are probably, I don't know, 45 minutes southwest. And very of similar. There, and, there's a river that splits us, but we, yeah. we're two prairies that are split by a river. Exactly. And, uh, you know, talking to my wife's grandfather, he's in his in his upper 80s now. When he was a boy, it was all still virgin prairie. And they had prairie chickens They had prairie recently. chickens until the 50s. Yes. I was really? Say, and, yeah. And so my, my grandfather-in-law, same farm, he remembers seeing one in the 50s as well. He said he remembers the Well, men. they had enough in the late 40s, early 50s um, that – you know, they would still go out and, like, collect eggs and do all sorts of illegal yep. stuff. Yes. <laughs> uh, of course, I don't know if there's a law against it then, but now, you know, that'd be, be abhorrent. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, there was enough there that that was a common thing for kids to do. And they knew they were good eating because they, yeah. the ancestors, they, they that was a regular part of your meals. You'd go out and kill a prairie hen. Um, yeah. and, and to me, you know, I would, I'd kill that. Just to see prairie one. Chick. Yeah. yeah, to see I them have or have one them. in the state of Missouri. <laughs> when, and, like, that is a red yep. letter just year. I, I drove down to El Dorado Springs to do that. And then up in uh, Minnesota, I drove out to a prairie out there just to flush them. And it, it was, I didn't, I wasn't hunting. I just walked around to kick them up so I could yeah. say I'd seen them. Do, um, do you have any fr- pheasant up there? No, uh, right west of us um, in Clarence, Missouri. So there's something to do with soil types. I don't completely understand it, but there's something. Pheasants are a weird thing. They they <laughs> cannot live in our area, but if you drive. Th- really? See, I always thought minutes. it was north of the uh, Missouri because there's of the a well, it, it is because it gets better up yes, there, there, but there's then it has to be more specialized. Specific soil types. Like we have fairly productive soil, but Clarence, there, there's a little soil lobe that comes down there, and I, I, I don't. I'm not a soil scientist, so I don't completely understand it. I just know that there's something different with the grit and everything. Mm-hmm. Pheasants can survive there up through Iowa. They can't survive. We've released them. My grandpa used to be a huge pheasant hunter. Um, you know, they'd make a little while, and the coons and everything else would kill them on top mm-hmm. of. We just don't quite have the right um, environmental functions. But, yeah, um, mm. so I don't know. There's all sorts of things that are. But, you know, backtracking, though, when we talk about, you know, the difference between you and up there and where we're at here, I mean – you know, if you go back to, to settlement, most of the Ozarks was either a grassland, a prairie, or a very open woodland. So is that different than a glade or is that similar? 
be very different. Very different. Um, Glades you know. are more open, correct? Like within, is a glade an opening within a woodland? Or I, I don't. I, so, I know what it is, but I don't yeah. know the true definition. I guess. But. Yeah. So a glade, it's going to be, you know, if we go off textbook, it's going to be a south or west facing, um, shallow soiled, basically open barren. Okay. So it'll have a lot of rock in it. That, yeah. Yeah. So and dry. So that's kind of the hallmark of a glade is you know your shallow rock. You have rocks on the surface. Um, you're incredibly dry. I mean, just walking from a glade to whatever ecosystem is next to it, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes it'll be five degrees hotter on the glade. Okay. Um, so that's definitely part of it. But, you know, thinking about the Ozarks, if we think about, you know, some of the first people that came through here, they talked about how open it was as far as being a woodland. Yeah. You know, if you look at Schoolcraft, whenever he went through in, I think, 1819, 1820, that winter, you know, there's very few bits in his journal that he talked about it actually being a forest. You know, the rest of it, you know, it was all, you know, 100, 200 yards between trees or, you know, it was park-like, thinking about how open that was. Mm-hmm. So, functionally, we're a grassland. Yep. It's just we've gotten rid of fire and we've basically reverted back to trees. And it's not to say trees are bad, but... We're not where we were. Now, we were probably, you know, all of that fire was probably anthropomorphic. You know, it was probably all human caused, but that was still the environment we had. You know, who knows how many thousands, tens of thousands of years that had had been the ecosystem due to fire. And, and that's something to, you know, put a point on. You know, like when, when Europeans landed on this continent, we like to pretend that it was this glorious wilderness. It had been managed for, you know, every year we're finding out that Native Americans have been here a couple couple of thousand years longer than we thought originally. So I I think the conventional accepted date is 16,000 years ago now, but there's some other, every year you see something where they're finding sites that they're expecting to be 30 some thousand years old. So at some point we're going to have some data that's going to push those dates back farther. We we know that's going to happen, but that's just science and history and whatever else. Yeah, and I mean, you know, humans manage things. That's what we do. Absolutely. So, so, you know, we, we evolved in the savannas of Africa. The savannas are kind of in our blood and exactly. they're extremely, extremely productive environments because ruminants can thrive there. Nuts and fruits can thrive there. They're, they're, it's, it's an extremely productive environment. Um, and so that's, you know, I'm, I'm on true Trollgash Prairie, but you know, if I, I get my management goals set, I'm going to have fruit and nut trees on my land at some point in time. That's, that's down the road as I can manage them, but I want to get the grass right first. But yeah. Um. Yes, I mean it's pretty crazy. Yeah, I mean as we learn more, right? As we discover more, as the research tells us. I mean, I don't know, just the whole biodiversity, polycultures, integration. It was so advanced, right? And then we tried to start. You know, we figured out we knew more i don't i don't understand right but basically we went backwards with monocrops and single livestock ventures and stuff and now all of a sudden it's turning around and we're going to polycultures of forages and we're going to polycultures of you know a diversity of stacking enterprises per se and and like does that continue do we do we see a continuation of polycultures of forage and diversity of enterprises and i think to survive you know there's and there's 
two very different schools of thought there. You know, you've got the conventional mindset that like you need to specialize in a couple things and get really good at those and survive. But that's hard to ride the market lows and in a commodity system, that's going to happen. Like a a commodity is going to have lows and highs. That's just the nature of the commodity system. So Mm -hmm. we talked about marketing earlier. Yeah. In my mind, I like the idea of the polyculture. Yeah. It's, it's a little more to juggle, but um, maybe you hire someone on, or you're able to bring someone else on that's better in those areas than you are. So mm-hmm. not only does it provide a better opportunity for someone else to yeah, be on that land that wouldn't have been otherwise, if you had been specialized. Um, yeah. And it can look different, right? I mean, you and your wife might be really good at, uh, finishing lambs and farrowing pigs. Right. And I might be better at finishing beeves and, uh, taking those feeder pigs and f- you know finishing those you know it it looks different it it's we've gotten away where we're like kind of competing but we're not we're like price takers and we're just joint price takers right is what it's camp come down to there's no competitive advantages there's you know there's no specialty about it right we all produce the same number two you know com- conventional people all produce the same product you know they're all going to roughly be similar when they sell at the local grain bin or sell at the sale barn. You know, they're going to be within cents of each other. And, and you're hoping to be cheaper than the neighbor so you can have that little advantage. Maybe you can pick up another farm that they couldn't because you're a little bit cheaper. And yeah. at the end of the day, like, there might be some skill to that, but, but a lot of that's luck. You know, Well, it, it comes down to economies of scale. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, if you and, can and be that's big huge. enough that, that those couple of cents here and there turned into <laughs> thousands of dollars, then it works. Yep. But if you're not to that point, then you've got to specialize. Yep. Yeah. You have to broaden and specialize. And that's, you know, when I came home to the farm, um, you know, my dad passed away. I'm trying to figure out, you know, this farm's either going to get rented out and it's going to get torn up and it's going to grow two crops and it'll look just like every other farm in the area. Or I can try to continue to do the things that, you know, my family has loved to do. Mm -hmm. Um, But it had to evolve to support multiple families. And, and it, I'm not going to say it's there yet. You know, it's, it's a work in progress. Oh, so I'm trying to market course, stuff because it's been, you know, in the, you know, we've gone so far away from the polycultures and the natives and the stuff like that. Right. It's going to be a work. In, you know, we tore up what it was for X amount of years. And then, you know, it's going to take X amount of years just to get back to, yeah, and, and so, like, Gallon walked two, two separate farms of mine um, last summer when we had a field day with some cover uh-huh. crops. So the one, the first farm that I had the cover crop uh, plot on was grazing sheep on. That was managed by one side of my mom's family. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they've been more specialized for a longer period of time. Where the other side of the family, um, my grandmother's side, the Redmonds, um, they, they kind of stayed diverse all the way up into the 80s at, at the very least. Um, it, it was probably longer than that. Um they, yeah, they, they had a lot more rotations, whether it was a hay rotation, livestock rotation, cropping rotation. Yeah. It, it was a lot, the, the system was just different. And those farms are all in grass now, but when portions of them were in row crop, they consistently out yielded the other farm. The other, both farms were extremely productive compared to the county averages, but the one that had been in rotations longer, mm-hmm. even when we went to a simplified system, outdid the others just because of the fertility in the soil. And I think we see that pretty consistently in, in different areas. Um, hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, I don't know, just kind of neat, you know. As we, corporations have said monocrops focus on one type of animal agriculture. You know, it seems like we've gotten away from the bigger picture and the holistic thinking. 
And uh, well, I, and it it comes down to I think two things primarily, and and one of them is, you know, if we think about it from a a crop and forage standpoint, the reason why we plowed up the prairies is you plow that down, you've got ten thousand years worth of fertilizer that you just had access to. Mm-hmm. But then, what do you plant there? You plant what you know. So nobody knew anything about big blue stem. Let's say, mm-hmm. and we didn't have a lit review on that. Yeah, but we did on Timothy. We did on 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 bluegrass. And you're moving from Germany and Russia and these other areas. Exactly. What are you going to put in the ground? I'm, I'm going to put you wheat. put what you know. <laughs> and I'm going to put orchard grass. I'm going to yeah. So you couple that in with you know incredibly cheap input cost. Mm-hmm. You can make things that shouldn't work work. And yeah, so basically on the lo- lines of longitude, right? The grasses and stuff we've moved in were way south of what. Yeah, I mean tall fescue. Tall fescue is a Mediterranean <laughs> species, so if you just run straight across, that should be northern Minnesota. Yep. Yep. And it, and it can't handle the winters up there. That's yep. that's one of the funny things, you know. So if we're looking purely longitudinal. It cannot handle the winters up there. I'm not saying they don't have some of it. So, but, so speak, it's Mediterranean. Speak. So where is it coming from? The fescue is going to be the Western Mediterranean. So a lot of it came from France, kind of Western Italy, maybe into a little bit of Spain. Okay. So then when you move those over, right, then we're at Minnesota. We're, yeah, so we're higher at, than where we are here in yeah. Missouri. So we, we land like Turkey, don't we? Like we're very similar yes. to Turkey is where yeah. we are. Because that's something I love. So I mean, it all comes down to environment. Yeah. So you can't just follow, you know, truly where we fall in the globe around. But even so, you know, if you look at that, you know, Missouri, we had a lot of, of German immigrants. Mm-hmm. So they you brought know, northern they species brought, yeah, to your northern, northern southern species. environment. And that's yeah. the same with cattle, though. Uh, oh, absolutely! Oh, it's exactly the yeah. same as cattle. So you know, you're, we're bringing Herefords, mm-hmm. Aberdeen, Angus. That should probably they, they fit very well into Minnesota and Canada and these and other Wyoming, areas. right? So yes. the, then when we talk about the cattle trails and we're moving Longhorns, Coriente type cows from Texas up to you know Wyoming, right? Then we're using Hereford bulls on them. Yep, that's why it makes sense up west, right? So, okay, tracking. So. I mean, so we got, you know, we're, so we're like shifting all of our forage bases south. Yes. Right. And then, so our environment per se in Missouri is a mix of warm and cool season, but currently we're plagued by a predominant cool season monocrop of fescue, which is better suited for a way northern environment and and so this is something i know gatlin and i have talked about in the past i can't think of what podcast i was listening to the other day but they were talking about the same thing we'd said this the warm seasons dominate historically all the way to the canadian line and when i worked in northern minnesota i was at beltrami county my house was 100 miles from international falls and so beltrami county is bigger than connecticut so it was a two and a half hour drive up into the grigla area which was I finally got out of the trees and into like true prairie or willow, willow thickets into prairie. Mm-hmm. It was predominantly big blue stem up there. Wherever the wherever the prairie had a chance to continue to express itself was warm season grasses, which really? is you know if we want to talk about what we're always encouraged to manage down here, what we're, expressed itself up there was not the case, and that's a hundred and three to hundred and twenty day growing season. Yeah, and so that's 
yeah, where we're expressed to manage for cool seasons here, you know, when the prairie way up north is expressing warm season. It, I mean, I guess there's moose up there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I jumped. So when I was out kicking up, uh, I was kicking up um, prairie chickens. Uh, I accidentally scared a moose because it scared the crap out of me because I, I remember hearing something flushing like, what is that thing? And like, I'd seen some cow pies. And, so I thought someone had some cows loose on this prairie. And that's crazy because a moose, right, and is burning up at like 70 degrees, right? When yeah. It, when it, when the air temperature hits 70 degrees, that's when a moose is hot. Yep. And, and, and you you're know, pro, that's a predominant warm season system. Yep. Well, it just and comes natural. down to the efficiency of C4 plants. You know, it, when you, have a cool environment that c4 can still occupy that that warm season niche because when you talk about where you see those c4s basically turn back into a cool season c3 grass system mm-hmm. you're pretty far up into canada yeah yeah and and you're getting close to the tree line probably yeah like, like i'd say that's a narrower band like we have cool season grasses that express themselves here but it's for a limited time of the year. And well, it's for a limited time on. of the year or a, a limited environment. Yes. Yep. You know, or it, or even just a small portion of that that grander warm season grassland. And, you know, so that was something uh, a couple of years ago. We went out to uh, uh, Wind Cave. Is that where? Yeah, Wind Cave in the Black Hills, I believe. Yeah. Okay, so um, I, I worked with a bison restoration project, and so the bison happened to come from there, so I wanted to go walk around that particular prairie. And... Uh, on the north-facing slopes out there, lead plant and a bunch of echinacea species would express, whereas on the south-facing slope was more grass. And there were some forbs in it, but it wasn't the same. So the bison would sit on the south slopes and have their dust wallows there. Uh, so talking about, like, within those ecos, within a bigger ecosystem, you, you'd mentioned earlier, the, you know, grasses are going to express themselves in different areas and species. Um, like, so, again, lead plant was extremely productive. The bison liked it, but they would only hit at certain times whenever they wanted to get into the shade and hit that particular plant. Well, and that's something to remember is, you know, if we think about the system, you know, you have your warm season grasses, you know, those are your C4 plants, then you have your C3s. Yeah, we have cool season grasses, but most of those are your forbs. Yeah. So that's going to occupy a niche that, yeah, you know, thinking of Missouri, you know, you've got six or seven species of wild rice, you've got a couple of bromus species, you've got a couple of festucas. Yeah, they're the cool seasons, they're here, they're doing their thing, but if you see a big patch of them, it's a specialized environment. Yeah. Be that early wild rye in a river bottom, you know, you've got a different environment that maybe switchgrass wants to live in, maybe eastern gamma grass wants to live in. Mm-hmm. Um, but even looking at those, those are both the earliest of our warm seasons. Mm-hmm. So they're still trending to that cooler side. Yeah. But you look at, at your forbs, thinking of those echinacea species, you know, there are some drought-tolerant, heat-tolerant echinaceas out there. Oh, yeah. yeah but they're, they're still a C3 plant. They were green because that was a crazy thing. So, like, I, I just took it in the morning and went out and hiked for, like, three or four hours. And so I, I kind of worked my way up this creek bottom that was on the north side or north-facing slope, sat down and watched some coyotes hunting prairie dogs, and the buffalo were breeding out in the far side. Because I think, is it lead plant they call buffalo bellows? Cause it, it, I think so, it, yeah. It, it flowers whenever they're, the buffalo are in the breeding season. So, the, yeah, the buffalo are bellowing. So that's why I call it that. So just, yeah, interesting fact. Um, that's cool. Gatlin knows I'm obsessed with lead plant. I've seen one plant in Missouri. I want some in my pastures just really badly. Just come on down. I'll give you all you can take. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, as I just, I, you know, I think I went on a three-mile hike that day. But the amount of different, like, ecosystems I went through just in that little hike. And it, it, we didn't change elevation and all that very much. But what it was able to express itself in different areas in the echinacea, in those 
more droughty areas, it really came on. And it, I don't know what particular species it was. It wasn't pale, but it, it was a really spiny. Yeah, was it uh, pallida or whatever it is, the, the narrow-leaved? No, there, there was some of the, there was some of that. There was yellow coneflower. There was gray-headed coneflower. And then this one was like, it was almost, the center of the flower was almost pink, but it was a extremely big, extremely, if I saw it, I would know what it is. I'll yeah. have to look it up and send it to you. But um, it's just extremely interesting to walk through that ecosystem. But because, um, yeah, actually, see, I'm not even going to say it's a functioning prairie, but it was definitely more functioning than what we've got around here currently. Or yeah. in my area, I should say. Not You all have some true prairies down here. But. I mean, I, I don't know. I think that's pretty neat. I think I hope we get back to that. <laughs> I think with adaptive grazing, I think it's starting to happen. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that still needs to be learned. I mean, there's a lot of government <laughs> agencies that need to get on board and actually get a grip. I with, think uh, NRCS going on. has some funding coming out where they're they're incentivizing warm season natives. So that's something that excites me. There's at least some. We got to have a start. Yeah, I, I, I'm excited for that. Because, Me too. Because you know, if you can make it easier for the the average farmer, if you can incentivize them enough to put something in, that's where we get started. Yep. And yep. so I'll probably be one of the dummies that's early on that because I've got be some an early I convert. So yeah. And I mean, with that, you know, trying to establish some warm seasons, what what changes to your you like your grazing management? Because that's a problem that I've got. Is right. Hope. I want to get these warm seasons adapted. I I know they fit, but it's the setting aside acreage maybe. Um, right now, you know, if we see some warm season, you know, we'll put a put a poly wire fence around it, let it go to seed. Then we'll incorporate animals to it once it's gone to seed. Um, but other than that, you know, like it is so expensive to get into it, right? You're I mean, just a minute ago, we were talking a couple hundred dollars to $300 an acre for gamma grass to get it going. I mean. Yeah, and, and so there, there's a couple of different ways you can play with some of those. Again, the government funding might ease some of that burden. I know that's not for everyone. Um, yeah, but, I mean, it's worth looking into. It, I mean, absolutely. Because if you can get somebody to pay for it, pay for the majority I of mean, it. And that's the thing, right? It's got, The money's going to be used or in some way someone's going to get that money yeah so like if you want to get it established i mean there's such a i mean you might as well use it right you know i had a farmer he uh he was reluctant to do it and uh and he finally he he basically went you know full hog into it and Mm -hmm. is putting about every program you can imagine onto his place and the way that he described it and you know, it's not exactly the the best way to look at it, but I think it rings pretty true. He said, I'm just getting my tax dollars back. Yeah. And and that's something, you know, my dad was very anti-government, and that was one of those things. We, I can't remember the website, but we got on it at one point. And it showed, like, how, many, how much the farmers got funded in our area by the government. It's like, okay, like these guys that are giant monocultural, monocultural row crop operations, um, yeah, we might as well put some of that back in perennials. Yeah, and exactly. Stuff. I mean, I, they're it's, getting it's funding good with whatever what federal is. crop insurance or whatever. I don't know enough to, you know, say good or bad, but you know, the money's there. If you're making an effort to do something good with it, restore something, you know, and your intentions are good as a whole, you might as well use it because it's going to be used by somebody else. 
if you don't use it. And their yep. intentions might not be as pure as yours, whether it is to manage your livestock better with implementing some sort of high tensile fence or utilizing the water or the yep. fertility, you know. And so as the taxpayer myself, you know, like what do I want to see my tax dollar spent on if I don't get a say if I get to keep that tax dollar or not? Um, yeah, I'd rather see it go into some native grasses that, you know, that's going to A, bring back an ecosystem that used to be here. It's yep. going to be a little more wildlife friendly. So hopefully we have some better quail populations It's on top of maybe some other species showing up. Yeah. Um, it, it's going to benefit my cattle because it's going to mm-hmm. fit a niche there. Hopefully the sheep can find some value in that. And it's not just growing number two yellow dent corn or soybeans. So, yeah. Well uh, then plus your direct to consumer business, right? If you're producing meat, right? Your product should be more nutrient dense than just some, monocrop produced protein theory in theory that's what you know they say i mean i have we've tested our beef um and you had some pretty good numbers from yeah so like our omega six to three just on our ground on a home raised heifer hefferette whatever you want to call her you know was a 1.841 to one i mean or 1.843 to one uh we did two samples one was an organ meat blend one was a ground beef you know I mean, that kicked wild salmon's ass on an (laughs) omega-6 to 3 ratio. I mean, the nutrient density of that and the health benefits of that is out of this world, right? The only omega-6 to 3 ratios better is like fruit. There was, you know, we beat deer. We beat uh, grass-finished bison. We beat wild salmon. And, yeah, so, like, using those government dollars to put in systems— that ultimately benefit the community, right? I, I don't see a problem with that. Because if you don't use it, it's just going to get used for some to, for somebody else. You're going to build terraces or waterways. Yeah, terrace or waterway, which is, you know, is a management issue. Uh, you know, it, it's a management issue, yes, but it's it's not a bad thing to go there either. If you it's going to get used, hopefully that's going to save some soil. If it's going to be used for corn, like if you're going to, you know, if you've got a, ter- I mean, terrace or waterway something, or tear something, let's say, it probably should be grazed anyway. I agree with that, but the the system would not ever be put back to grass, more than likely. And, and that's, so if we can put dollars there to at least keep some of that soil, then, you know, that's still worthwhile. Now, I'm not arguing that, that we shouldn't be incentivizing more grasses to be put in or even to take cropland out of production, but, you know, it's... It's something that you'll see, I guess, is there's a lot of us versus them when it comes to the grassland versus row crop crowd. Mm-hmm. And that is, no one's doing anything maliciously. Just sometimes we don't know enough to know what's good and bad. Yeah, yep. and yeah, I'm not apply, uh, implying that farmers are, you know, keeping a monocrop to fescue and they're confinement not. feeding animals because they're malicious or have, you know, ill intent on people. It's, I think it's just the lack of information, right? I mean, most doctors have, what, zero, one to two if hours of nutrition, right? And they're going to write a script for a drug. I mean, it's, you know, it's just all ill-informed, right? Food is, that food can be medicine, you know, and it what? goes back to us being specialized again. So it's it's not just an agriculture that we specialize. We specialize in everything in life, which is good and bad. You know, like yeah. I, oh, yeah. I, I want someone, if, if I have to have brain surgery, I want someone specialized. Oh, no, but I'm not going to ask my brain surgeon on, on how to do taxes. Um, you know, so. Yeah, no, 100%. Within that, um, 
It's but, hard to be. I I've got enough ADHD or whatever. So I, I like to dabble in a bunch of different things. So you know, there's got to be people like me or better than me um, mm-hmm. out there to do that. But it, it's hard for everyone to be that person. Like I yeah, said. and not saying I'm good at it. I'm I'm terrible. And but. you know, maybe you know, asking a doctor or physician to be a nutritionist is too much, which is fine. But maybe we can find nutritionists and doctors to work together, right? Maybe we can find yeah. nutritionists, gym people i don't know what those are called like a workout person you know but somebody to like get somebody up and moving and stretching and stuff maybe we need maybe instead of just needing a doctor you need three people right you need a nutritionist you need a doctor or physician and then you need somebody that helps you with your workouts and stretching and stuff right that that's how we make a difference and then your pharmacist i mean my brother-in-law is a pharmacist right but you know, maybe your pharmacist is just there supporting the need, you know, the byproduct of what, you know, if your nutrition and your stuff can't get that. But a lot of it, I think, can be fixed by diet and exercise. And Stretching. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. I mean, we're, we evolved as a very active people. Yeah, um, we were, and yeah I, a lot that, of us That's were, one of my biggest was issues. Was nomadic, right? Yep. Moved and hunted, hunter-gatherers, right? And then we kind of just... Now we can order a freaking meal with a phone, right? We don't even well, have to go and, up and chase it. Yeah, and and you know we've we've moved from a preventative to a reactive, you know, approach to our health. Yeah, you know we eat terrible things, and then we come up with something that fixes that problem, <laughs> so we can keep eating terrible things. Exactly. So, yeah. and, and you know, it, so I, I've got a cousin that's a doctor, and he he's awesome. Um, and that's one of the things you know I've struggled. I I need to go see him for just some family health issues that obviously yeah dad yeah. at 47 i've been putting some of that stuff off because my fear is they're going to prescribe something so i can continue my lifestyle where myself i would rather make a couple lifestyle changes and maybe that prevents me from having to take some of these products um and i don't yeah i don't know what that answer is going to be yet but that's something I'm, i've got to do at some point here in the yeah. near future but yeah that's um, i mean there's so much that can be changed or looked at differently to better us. But I don't know. I mean, baby steps, talking about it. You know, we're not going to change anything overnight. I mean, especially two dudes, or three dudes, and a bunch of beer. <laughs> <laughs> Conver- um, conversation's the first step. So. Yep. Yeah. Then the crazy People guys th- that adopted eventually become the norm. Yep. Yep. Yeah, and I think that's great. I mean... We we talked about we were the weird kids in college, but I feel like we're <laughs> we're doing some cool stuff. Yeah, now, now so. we're, yeah, like we're, <laughs> well, I, yeah. I mean, I was I followed along in the conventional everything, you know. So I can't say I was the weird kid. I'm the weird guy now, yep. for sure. But you, yeah, you had an open mind to jump into it. Now that's the main thing. You didn't <laughs> yep. just stick with it all the way through. So yeah, and I think you know by leading this way, I mean it's definitely causing people. I see it causing people to think differently. Yep, or question it. You know, yeah, I got if, a lot of questions on, you know, why why would we do that if this is working for us? I'm like, if it's working for you, why would you change it? You know, it didn't work for me. You know, fes- straight fescue and black cows didn't work for me. So there was a guy out of the Ranching for Profit, and uh, his, his family operation, his dad started a direct-to-consumer vegetable market in Seattle back in the day. And he told us he was out there. He doesn't need to change. Uh, he has no. He has no need to change. But he had conventional cattle. He had grass finished cattle. He had a feedlot. 
he had a vegetable production mm-hmm. business and he had like some conventional row crop as well. He said, you know, at some point, you know, this is going to get broken up enough between my grandkids. I may as well learn some of these principles. So maybe if they have to apply them, they can apply them. So, like, I mean, he went in there with a pretty good mindset to go and in, into that, but like, you know, very open about, yeah, he didn't have to change, but he was going to at least explore these possibilities. Yeah. On why to change. And I think the um, most successful people go about life with that, mentality right that they don't know it all they're gonna surround themselves with people that know more than they do and then they're going to use that knowledge that experience to make the proper decisions to keep going and keep pushing forward towards a goal and I think that's that's key right you don't know it all we can talk about it openly we can be civil about our discussions I might not agree with everything you guys do i mean i agree with um, you know but i agree with a lot of it right i mean probably all of it but we can still have a nice civil discussion about it we can talk about the way other people see it we don't shame them for thinking that fescue is you know the cure-all and that you know big black cows and protein tubs are the cure-all but i mean it's you know it just takes time, takes, you know, leading by example. Yeah, and, and build your community. I mean, yeah. and not just not just like-minded people, but get people from way outside of your realm, just different well, perspectives. Well, that's, that's what we've, you know, really become is we have developed an echo chamber, yeah. um, you know, in a lot of our society, but especially agriculture. You know, we do what works when we surround ourselves with people that are doing the same thing because mm-hmm. – we're comfortable. It's easier to talk works. to them. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. We can go to the coffee shop and everybody's going to be on my page, right? Exactly. So, you know, you branch out, you get that guy that's doing something completely different. You get that person that is doing something that looks like it should fail. Mm-hmm. At least see why they're doing it. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. No. Well, I appreciate it. I mean, we're approaching hour 45. So, over that. So, um yeah i appreciate it i mean um you know anything else you guys want to talk about say i mean we didn't really cover why uh you weren't buying bulls in missouri for your (laughs) for a missouri farm but (laughs) yeah yeah now i'll uh I'll, i'll give the political answer to that um you know we select sires that uh match the breeding goals of the uh of the herd and uh yeah there you go those two matched this time around. Yeah, well, you can come to Horseman Cattle Company next time. We'll get you lined out. <laughs> um, but, no, that's fair enough. And that's more than you need to tell me. I understand. So, nope. Anything else? Yeah, I think we beat it to death today. So well, Yeah, that sure. no, was a good day. It was pretty nice outside. We looked yeah. at my cracked out, cr- <laughs> my cracked out crop ground. <laughs> It's not growing. Always room for improvement. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it'll recover. It's at some still point. in the scratching phase. Yes, it's got a heavy neck scratch going on. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, appreciate it. Where I mean, I can hear about you guys in episode one and two. But if you want to spout off any information, disclaimers, everything you said was a fact. And uh, there was no opinion <laughs> stated, but it was all facts. 
everyone's got an opinion and it all everybody stinks. That's that's my best. <laughs> Amen to that. <laughs> my best rhetoric. So. Sounds good. Well, I appreciate it. So, well, yeah. Thanks, thanks for having us on. Oh, yep. thanks, yeah. August. That was good. All right. We'll talk at you later. See you.